Before the podcast, I wanted to give you an overview of today's topic. It's about a cult here in Australia called The Family. The Family was a cult here in Australia, and it was run by Anne Hamilton Byrne, who had a lot of influential people as members. They were members of law enforcement, psychiatrists, social workers, and other people of society in Melbourne. The cult was responsible for the illegal adoption of babies from the 1970s onwards. The children grew up on a remote property in rural Victoria, Australia, and were looked after by what was known as the aunties, people who obeyed every word the cult leader Anne Hamilton Byrne said. Their lives were not easy, and they were constantly under physical, emotional and mental abuse. Here is a conversation I had with the lead detective. Hello and welcome to Life Changes You. I'm Daniel and it's good to have you back again. Uh, We're now in the new year, which is fantastic. I mean, uh, we've been going just over two years now, 145 episodes. So obviously we're talking about things that people are interested in, which is really good. And I'm loving all the feedback that I'm getting. So thank you very much. And I will get back to you as soon as I can. Uh, Today, I've got a really special guest. Uh, He's called Alex Deman. And uh, we're talking about a cult that was in Australia from the 70s I think until mid 80s maybe 90s um, and it was called The Family and uh, so Lex is currently the CEO of Victoria Police Legacy so hello Lex how are you? Hi Daniel I'm good thank you. Thank you for coming on Um, I was very excited when we got introduced and uh, as I said to you before I actually I have a bit of a thing about reading about cults and wondering why they started and why people are involved in them or how they get Uh, I guess, manipulated into them. Um, But yours is a different story because it's, it's from a different angle, I guess, than most people would actually get to speak to someone about. So would you like to say uh, what you are and what you've done in your life? What I've done in my life, Uh, my my work life. Um, Yeah. As you, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm currently the chief executive officer of Victoria Police Legacy. I've been there since uh, June, 2016. Right. Uh, and before that, I had a 20-year 20, 20 uh, career with the Country Fire Authority, the CFA in Victoria, yeah. uh, where I was uh, initially a regional director uh, in charge of a number of different parts of Victoria for 15 years. And then my last five years of service with the CFA was uh, as executive director responsible for volunteerism and for training. Wow. And prior to that, uh, I was a, a police officer with Victoria Police for 18 years and during my time at CFA as a regional director, I was also uh, um, a councillor, a local councillor on the Shire of Nilnbeck in Melbourne's northeastern suburbs and yep. of those five years, I was two years as mayor. So wow. I had a bit of a raft of experience across a number oh. of districts, let me put it that way. Oh, I'm learning more about you now. I didn't realise you were a mayor as well. Well, there you go. You yep. never know who pops up to you. No. <laughs> so your career in the police force, uh, I mean, you must have covered lots of different uh, investigations and crimes and, you know, I mean, look, I have spoken to other police before, not on on the podcast, but uh, your, li- your lives never seem uh, not boring, but, you know, you've always got something that you're working on or thinking about or working towards. So um, do you want to give us an overview of, 
um, this cult, uh, the family, which was by Anne Hamilton Byrne, and how you sort of came across across it in the first place? Well, I, I suppose um, I'll take you back on a journey back to December 1987 wow. to, uh, to a, a school fire that happened in Monbulk, a yep. primary school fire uh, in the last week of December, just before Christmas. And uh, I was in the arson, arson bomb squad at that stage and um, I was part of a, uh, of a three-man three uh, on-call crew. We used yep. to do on-call uh, on rota- weekly rotations. So, um, you know, early in the morning we received a phone call that there'd been a fire at a school and so uh, we, uh, myself and uh, one other detective, we, we turned up at the Monbulk uh, uh, School and started to investigate the fire, Yeah, uh, what, what its cause was. And more so from our point of view, was it, uh, was it a malicious fire? And if so, who may have lit the fire? Uh, there was a classroom that, we, that was destroyed and so forth. So as part of the, part of the avenues of inquiry, as we call it, I, um, I spoke to um, the principal and, and said, you know, whose who's classroom was this? And he indicated who the teacher was. And then just some further inquiries led me to um, ask some questions about one of the pupils because in a school fire, often if it's a room, it yep. might be somebody's got a, a vent against that. Yeah, yeah. So um, I found out the name of this of this child that was in the class and was told that he had been or was still part of this uh, cult called the family. And I yep. hadn't really heard of the family. And um, so I spoke to the local regional police doctor um, part-time and um, he told me this amazing story that this child had been part of this religious cult called the family yeah, and that uh, the family uh, was based in the, uh, the beautiful Mount Dandenong Ranges and that the leader of the cult, a, a woman by the name of Anne Hamilton Byrne, that her followers believed that she was Jesus, she was Jesus Christ reincarnated in the female form. Yeah. Well, at that point, Daniel, I thought, boy, this doctor has got some real bad psychiatric problems. <laughs> yeah, and and it wasn't soon. It wasn't soon after that I found out that what I was being told was true. You know, there was this cult of up to five hundred followers of very well-to-do, smart uh, people in, in some very senior positions and disciplines in 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 the in the community sector. Uh, that uh, believed that Anne was Jesus Christ reincarnated in a female form. So we started to look into the school fire, and I had a, I hope this cult really started to interest me. Yeah. After about three months of looking into that, we, we couldn't establish who lit the school fire. And uh, I was told by my then superiors to drop this issue about the cult. Yeah. Because I was told, you know, children had been taken from birth. And, falsification of passports and birth certificates. And there was something in there, but uh, the local community policing squad, as it was called in those days, because uh, you've got to remember we're back in the 80s now, yeah. um, they had tried to get a, an investigation up and running. But, you know, in those days, you know, matters to do with children were seen more as a community, community uh, uh, services type of thing, not yeah. really a policing thing. So I dropped it after three months officially, but kept my hand in and, and kept talking to the to the people at the community policing squad. I got to know a number of the children 
who turned out had been released in a raid that had occurred in the August of 87 from a property up at Ilden. And um, they called it Up Top. And there was, it was this, it was this uh, secluded house that was actually run like a private school. It was, the kids were educated there. And all these children had been taken by authorities, Federal Police, Victoria Police and Department of Human Services after one of the girls had escaped and yeah. told this amazing story about uh, about her brothers and sisters. Yeah. Um, and they, they were all, you know, the hair, the majority of them had their hair peroxide blonde and so forth. And they all believed that their mother was Anne Hamilton Byrne, their father was Bill Hamilton Byrne, Anne's second husband. So I, I met a couple of the girls, and one in particular uh, following the school fire uh, and the discussion with the police doctor. And I was just fascinated that nothing had been done. So I kept my hand in, and I was fortunate that in the June of 1989, I was asked to, to review a few files about the cult yeah. and whether something should be done. So I put a report together, and uh, I spent two weeks out at the eastern suburbs, out at uh, the Nunnawading uh, Police Headquarters, and I put a report together that said, you know, there is certainly prima facie evidence of uh, child stealing and the administration of drugs to children. Yeah. So I basically forced the hand of the department in those days to do something about it. So in December uh, 1989, I received a phone call from the head of the drug squad because I'd mentioned LSD and psilocybin, yeah. the drugs that had been administered to the children. I was given to the drug squad to deal with. So the detective chief inspector at the time there, rang me, I was a sergeant by this stage at the old Russell Street Police Station, and said, we're going to establish this task force of a senior sergeant, a sergeant and four detectives. We want you to be the sergeant, and you've got 12 weeks to clean it up, 12 weeks. So It doesn't seem very long to sort through all that. No, I fronted up in this room on a Monday morning with a senior sergeant who I didn't know, four detectives I didn't know, no resources apart from four empty desks and four empty filing cabinets, no car. Got to remember, this is pre, basically pre-internet. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you didn't really even have computers to work things out on. No, and um, given 12 weeks to sort it out. Um, so, and that's, you know, that, that 12 weeks for me personally started then a four-and-a-half-year journey. Wow. Still 13 police members go through the task force at varying times, and at the end, I was the only one that was left wow. of the original six that yeah. started on the task force. And, and the last 12 months of it, I was the senior investigator, the acting senior sergeant, detective senior sergeant, to um, with writing instructions to, uh, to finish it off and clean it up, which yeah. uh, the team I had at the time, we did a great job, and, and uh, while well, the rest of the history, we brought them back and, from the United States, and they fronted the courts. So that's that's a quick overview of the uh, of my involvement. And of course, there's uh, a lot of infill there for the four and a half years that I was on. Yeah, because I mean, in four and a half years, you covered so much stuff. And for those who are listening, uh, you were actually in. Well, uh, I think it was a movie in America, wasn't it, for um, about the cult? But here it was an ABC special in Australia called Children of the Cult. So if people were... Yeah, there was... Uh, 
wanting to have a look at that. I mean, I did some research when I spoke to you last week. I said, look, I've just rewatched it. I had watched it when it came out in 2017. Um, and there was lots of information in there. So, you know, yes, your four and a half years, you've summed it up so succinctly, but there was so much that happened for you and the other people involved, wasn't there? There was, there was, you know, and, you know, the, 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 the docuo drama that was done and launched in the 2016 Melbourne International Film Festival and followed up by what you indicated, the three-part series on the ABC plus the book that was written, was about my desire to make sure that the story was told so that people knew that this bizarre thing that happened wasn't some deep southern state, United States cult. No. It was actually happened on the doorsteps of Melbourne. Yeah. You know, the second most populated city in Australia, and also to serve as a as a reminder to those in authority that in the community that you know whilst our systems and processes are much better these days and our accountabilities are much much better and there's a greater focus on child abuse and yeah. and, and things all things to do with children yeah that you know when asked many times since the the investigation and the and the drama and the doco drama, you know, could this happen again? I've said, you know, I doubt it could happen again, but that doesn't mean it couldn't happen again. Yeah. And that was part of the education process that I wanted to see happen yeah. uh, in publicising w- what this thing was all about because, you know, it involved senior members of the legal fraternity, involved senior members of the medical fraternity, psychiatrists who were administering LSD into people, uh, into children. It was nurses, it was social workers, you know, it was school principal that was involved. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the people that you would think wouldn't be involved in this. These were smart people that became infatuated with Anne through their own uh, medical issues uh, and and how they actually began to see Anne as Jesus Christ reincarnated in the female form, you know, and as I said at the time of her death. When you were saying about it being, you know, in Melbourne, I mean, for people who are overseas who are listening, where Lake Ilden is, where one of the schools was, is about two hours from Melbourne. But in summertime, there's there's loads of houseboats and everything up there, isn't there? So it was near to where the children were. Yeah, it's about two, two and a half hours northeast of Melbourne in rural Victoria. And it's it's a large... Uh, lake, man-made lake in part, and, you know, there's hundreds of houseboats on there every summer holidays, school holidays, long weekends and weekends as people yeah. going up there. And, and you know, um, it was a great cover for Anne and the cult to actually use that. And, you know, what, what made it even, even bizarre was, you know, the education inspector actually visited the school on a yeah. number of occasions and they'd had a, a classroom set up in the land room and a blackboard and so forth. And, you know, they got a gold star. Yeah, it's a, it's a great school. You know, when the kids were told that when police, when the, if ever and when the police came, to hide under a, in a secreted spot under the house that had been made because the sole role of police in society was to kill children. Yeah. And they believed That's what yeah. they believed. So they were terrified, you know, when the raid happened in August 1987. Uh, and this is the evil thing that, that this woman and her followers did. 
and, and you know they were not they were not dumb people. They were smart people, and you know there was there was two particular nurses who the children called aunties who would work two weeks on and two weeks off at Uptop at the, at, at Lake Hilden, yeah, taking care of the children. And on their down down two weeks when they weren't up there, they were working in hospitals in Melbourne, and their wage they paid for the food and the upkeep of the children on the next two weeks. So they paid for the, you yeah. know, the, cabbage, the cabbages for the soup and the monetary food the kids had and so forth. Yeah. And there was a school teacher, a school principal, that was actually uh, preparing the lessons for the kids. And then he would go up on weekends to ensure that the armies had instructed the kids uh, in what the school lessons were. And the, the kids were highly educated, you know, like highly educated. Um, but they were under the misbelief of who they were, and uh, a number of them were taken from their natural mothers at the time of their births, and other natural mothers were, and they were deceived as to where the children were going to. Yeah. And you've got to remember, this is in the 70s yeah. now, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, and the the view of the society in those days of a 15-, 16-, 17-year-old unmarried girl yeah, was terrible. pregnant was atrocious, and so yeah. often out of shame, families would secrete their daughters away for nine months and, and, you know, and then all of a sudden they would turn up as if nothing had happened. But And those but, poor know, mothers so, who gave up their children, you know, like when they're 15, 16, 17, would have no idea where these kids were going to. You know, they're thinking they're going somewhere better. Well, we spoke to a number of, obviously we, we, one of the aspects of the investigation was to, to ensure that we could identify who the maternal, maternal parents of the of these children were and on you know a number of occasions when we knocked on the door to actually um, ask of course there was often shock horror that you know we thought we knew who the people were yeah and you know it's one of the first times that DNA samples were used in Victoria um, to prove that closeness and on a number of occasions as soon as the door opened I looked at the parent and I went oh yeah you are the parent. Yeah, yeah. It, it was just it was just there. So, so you know these 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 young girls, you know, more so the parents of the young girls, you know, uh, made these girls give up their children, and you know a number of the children um, who are obviously now adults, and yeah, many of them very well settled back into the community and and themselves become parents and so forth. They they just lived a life of deceit all the way through, you know of. They'd been lied to all the way through until until they, they were extricated from the cult. Yeah, well, I, when I was watching a part of the documentary yesterday, there was one of the girls on there and she said that when the police came up and sort of said to them, you know, are you well looked after? Do you have enough to eat? She said, well, yes, I do have enough to eat. And she said, well, of course, I, I didn't know any difference. So what I had to eat I thought was plenty. But once I got out and I realised what you could eat, I realised that, well, no, I wasn't getting enough to eat. Correct, 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 correct. I mean, yeah, from a young age, they've just been almost brainwashed and manipulated into the way Anne Hamilton Byrne wanted them to be, so they knew nothing different to what was going on there. Absolutely. You know, they were made into a, into a group of singers. You know, Anne had a fascination with, with you know, the choir, the, 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 her family becoming like a choir, like the, um, the Von Trapp family singers from The Sound yeah. of Music. She took them to the Dandenong uh, Singing Festival, Folk Festival. And oh, wow. There they were, and they, they sang 
all dressed up the same and so forth with their, the majority of them with their blonded peroxide hair yeah. and so forth. Um, and, and, you know, they all believe that Anne and William were their mother and father, you know, and, and they didn't learn that until, you know, that they were released in their early, early teens or uh, by the police in 87. And some of the children that were actually in the cult were actually um, cult followers' children, weren't they? Yeah, also well, there were a number of cult members that, I'll give you one example, one, one cult member who I spoke to a number of years ago after the investigation closed relayed the story where you know, her son was uh, two and a half years of age and Anne rang her and said, uh, you're not raising your child right, he's now mine, bring him to me. Oh, God. So the next time she saw him was when he was 18. So, so you know, they just, they just blind, blind obedience to the Almighty, and that's, what the, that's the power and the charisma she had over these people. And, you know, the cult itself, when you think about how it started, it started in the late 60s or in the 1960s through um, the, a fellow by the name of Rainer Johnson, who was a master of Queen's College. That's now, it, yes, yes. And Rainer Johnson had been in, uh, was a British uh, physicist who'd been involved in the, um, you know, the development of uh, weapons and so forth during World War Two and all that type of thing. And he was seen by the Melbourne Education Fraternity at the University of Melbourne as a, as, as a key prize if they could get him to be the yeah. master of Queen's College, which is, you know, one of our most eminent colleges in Victoria, academic colleges. And the position of master is, is you know, extremely high position. Yeah. So he came out to Australia and he was dabbling in Eastern mythology and how it related to Christianity. And I have a personal view that, that dear old Rainer was going, you know, crazy. Yeah. You know, Senile as part of this. And, you know, the story goes that he saw Anne one day at the, at the, at the university and um, Anne was in, went to his home with some others, saw Anne and said he'd seen the Messiah. And from there, um, you know, the cult grew. So, you know, it was through Dr. Rainer Johnson and then there was a number of leading psychiatrists in those days who had been licensed to uh, use the, uh, the drug LSD, yeah. the experimental drug, drug is LSD on, on people. And there was a, a woman who owned a private nursing psychiatric home in Normandy Road Q who followed Anne became a follower of Anne's and then so Anne used the private psychiatric hospital as basically, you could say, a grooming ground yeah. for future members. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, in those days, again, you've got to remember it was in the late 60s and 70s, early 70s, for someone to be a lawyer or for someone to be a nurse, someone to be in the legal fraternity, someone to be a social worker and so forth, to publicly say that they were suffering from mental health, uh, would have been the end of their career. Definitely. You yeah. know, different, different today. Yeah, yeah. Totally different today. So they went to a, a private psychiatric hospital for help and uh, they were there ready for the picking. And that's exactly what Anne did. And, and of course, once you got in with, I think you said his name was Rainer, um, you know, once you, you're up in that calibre of people, then people under that sort of social grouping, so I guess teachers, people like that, would want to follow because Rainer's like 
almost like a god because well, he's so well educated. You've got to remember in those days in universities in Australia, it was only, I think it was about the top 3% of uh, students actually went to university. Yeah. It wasn't the university as we probably now know it today yeah. that anyone can go to a university. It was, it was seen for those high achievers and those high academic achievers and they became the barristers and the lawyers and the judges and the doctors and the specialists and yeah. so forth in their field. So, and it was a very small society, if I can put it that way, that academic society. So the networking was amazing at that level across the various professions. And if you've got somebody in, in a position of authority that's well regarded by the community, that position, you know, was, you got to remember that in those days, you know, if you, if you said you're a bank manager or if you're a doctor yeah. or a teacher or a principal or a nurse, yeah. no one ever questioned your authority. You yeah. went, oh, wow. You know, you felt subservient to that person yeah, because they were smarter than you because they'd been to university. And society then wasn't like it is today where it would question and challenge. No, no, yeah. And that's what I was sort of getting at is like if you've got high-profile people like that, then, yeah, people just take you as face value what you're saying. They don't, they don't question it. Correct, correct. So with Anne, I mean, she, she started off, she does have a, a child of her own, doesn't she? But she claimed to have more children. She had a much older daughter than the children that were. Oh, top. okay, yeah. But Anne had a hysterectomy years before this started, so she could never have had children. And, and you know, there was a, I interviewed one of the cult members, former cult members who made the maternity dresses for Anne, and she said, you know, and always looked for years and years and years pregnant when I saw her. Wow. Well, that was just a little bump that she was wearing yeah. to, to, to perpetrate the lie. But I guess the, the, the cult members did believe that she was pregnant all the time. Correct, correct. You know, and, and, you know the, the cult was centred around Fernie, Fernie Creek, Sassafras area, Mount Dandenong. They yeah. had the chapel, Santa Keaton Lodge. You know, Anne, Anne's followers, including Anne, basically owned a whole street. Wow. In in, uh, in the hills, except for one other house. Uh, and Anne was such a miserly type of person that she actually, she didn't pay for her own water. She had a hose line going across the street from one cult member's to her place to get water for her house. You yeah. know, and, I, and Anne never paid for anything. It was always done by the cult members. You know, she had property in uh, Tunbridge Wells in Kent, in the United Kingdom, a place called Broom Farm. Yeah, property in the Catskill Mountains in the United Kingdom. Uh, she spent time in Hawaii. So, you know, she was always gallivanting around the globe and the aunties were taking care of the children at Eildon and often when the children um, had been uh, considered they had poorly behaved poorly over something, Anne would uh, ask the aunties to hold out the hold up the phone so she could hear the punishments being administered. Be I know, it's, it's but, awful to think um, that someone could be that controlling and be in another country. Correct, correct. So, you know, one of the, one of the things that, that I never always remember about the task force is when, you know, that, um, you know, when I first got the phone call, we got the phone call that she'd been arrested following a, a joint FBI arrangement between ourselves, our task force and the FBI office in New York, which is another story. And then when I went, when then I went and uh, to the United States with a 
small team to extradite her and her husband, Bill, yeah. uh, waiting in anticipation to meet her for the very first time. And I'll never forget the van of this, the side door of this uh, van, like a Mercedes-Benz vehicle, is probably, you would relate, among those univan-type things. Yeah. The door slid open, and here was this crumpled, old, little, old-looking lady, no blonde wig that she always wore, no makeup, um, and this old bloke, you know, her husband, yeah. uh, in leg irons and bracelets, and you would have thought, oh, you poor old lady, you know. I was just looking evil straight in the eye. Yeah. In the eye when I saw her that day. In this documentary, it said that there were up to 28 that were there. Um, she says she had 27 children go through her fingers, yeah. go through, through her arms. We knew of 13. Right. Now, you know, what What happened to the other 14 or were there an additional 14 or was that just her fantasy? Yeah. We don't know. And, and even, even the children that we spoke to and, and we got close to, whatever, you know, there was no others that, that they knew of. So, right, right, yeah. So, you know, I tended to believe the children a lot more than yeah, yeah, yeah. more than Anne. But yeah, so you know, uh, but it was also the manipulation of the cult members. You know, that at its peak in the late sixties, early seventies, it was over five hundred professional people and their partners, wives, wow. husbands, well, that were members of the cult and would go up to Santa Keaton Lodge for their services. And if Anne was out of the country. She would send back tape recordings, lessons, and they would all gather in the hall and they would play the tapes, you know, in front of the mat, in front of the altar there that where her chair was. Yeah. Uh, and many of the followers had, in their home, private homes, had what they call a blue room, and it was basically a blue-coloured room. And I remember going into one house when we did a raid, and there was a small room off the hallway, and it was a, it was blue. Yeah. And there was a very small table. And there was the crucifix, there were blue crystals, and there was a picture of Anne in front of the crucifix. That's where he would pray. Wow. And he was a doctor, wow. a general practitioner. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I, I, I can never get my head around how people like this, like taking the kids out of this because they, they have no choice, freedom of choice in this, but how uh, especially academic people could be sucked into following someone because you'd think well, that they were the smartest people that we would know. Yeah, but you've also got to understand how things happened. You know, I can recount one of the stories that we're informed of and confirmed, and that was the, at the private psychiatric hospital, one of uh, Melbourne's uh, eminent architects had, had, had uh, some issues due to a family issue and, and went in there, uh, was seen by a psychiatrist, and at night time in a dark room, he was given the drug LSD. Yeah. And in under the power of the drug, he looked up, and before him was, you know, this white figure in a flowing gown, white gown, with smoke coming up like haze coming up behind her. When actual fact, that was Anne in a white yeah. gown. There was a bucket of dry ice behind her, and the dry ice was just giving off this stuff and giving this mist and so forth. Yeah, and he believed he'd seen Jesus Christ reincarnated when told he had. Yeah, and and that's they came out of it and they'd seen the Lord, and then they were introduced to Anne, and that's how it happened. Simple as that. Blind following it, you know, it's it's the human mind can be manipulated, and we've seen that during over history, uh, in many different events. Yeah, and, and this is this is just another one of those events where the power of a human being can be so great 
um, over, over others. So I guess, you know, you said that Anne travelled all around the world and had properties everywhere. Did the uh, followers, did they give her a certain amount of money each week? You know, was it like the so with pay? The, so with Broom Farm, they purchased the farm for her. Right. They, the other, number of them went over the United Kingdom and did the maintenance and made it livable for Anne. Um, and so forth. So, you know, there, was, there wasn't the fortnightly subscription, like subs or whatever, yeah. but certainly if she needed money, she only had to ask for it and she was given it. You know, there was properties that were purchased. There were, there were land titles that were, that, were, that, that were purchased, you know. She would tell followers, for example, you know, uh, she would break marriages up and put this cult member with another cult member and anyone that became a cult member didn't end up with the same partner at the end of it, you know. So you're very good at manipulating people. So all these children were all singles, but she created twins in New South Wales through falsification of birth certificates. She created triplets. Uh, And one example is in New Zealand. We had had inquiries done in New Zealand where a handwriting expert went to New Zealand because... Um, she registered uh, through a doctor, a cult member who was a New Zealander, doctor working in New Zealand. She right. registered twins. And at one point she wanted the twins to actually be triplets. So she she got a number of the cult followers who were lawyers, a lawyer and social worker and doctor, and she wrote this affidavit basically saying, oh, look, when I gave birth to the twins, I actually had triplets. I didn't tell you about the third child. So the authorities in New Zealand just issued new birth certificates for triplets. Wow. You know, because people didn't question those things in those days. Yeah, yeah. Right? So, and then, of course, you do that so you can get passports and identity and move kids around because many of the children travelled overseas with Anne or Bill yeah. or with other cult members. So, so you know, it was, and at the end of the day, it was, it was a falsification of documents, uh, perjury, yeah. that one... Uh, led to the breakthrough in the case, which I can tell you briefly about. But secondly, actually uh, ended up with the charges of perjury uh, on documents that Anne and William were extradited from the United States back to face the court in Melbourne. Yeah. You you said in the documentary that there was a process with the extradition and once you agree to terms of what you're going to extradite them on, then once they get here, you can't add other charges onto that. Correct. Correct. So, so how, how does that process work then? Do you? So the whole this whole process that happens is we had to uh, uh, get a uh, get a warrant, arrest warrant. Yeah. So it was one of the first times where you know the DPP, Director of Public Prosecutions, as it was done in those days, actually appointed a prosecutor to work with the task force on what the best charges were. Okay, I see. For yeah. Provision. Yeah, yeah. And so there were a number of charges that were drawn up. Yeah. And then once the warrant was issued by the courts, the arrest warrant was issued by the courts, there's then a process of going through the federal government to get an international arrest warrant. Yeah. Uh, and it's tradition process underway because you're then dealing with another country, so it's got to go through the, the federal government. And so once, once those international warrants are then issued, uh, they can then be executed by a country that Australia has an extradition treaty with. Obviously, yep. we have it with the United States. And, you know, in that, I remember there was a bit of a stuff up from the Canberra end, the Attorney General's Department, with regards to the documents and the, 
the judge in the district court in in um, White Plains, Upper State New York, was going to dismiss the whole thing because the paperwork was wrong. Right. And of course, there was no PDF files in those days. We did everything via this thing called a facsimile machine, and and we worked when when the FBI and the prosecutor was working day shift, we were working night shift so we could do all these documents and vice versa. Wow. So that was a whole process in itself. And after Anna William had been arrested in the United States on the perjury charges, they were taken to a prison and held in a prison until the extradition was either granted or yep. was dismissed. And this went on for a month or so. You know, they refused to the extradition and, Two things happened. One, Anne said that she was not well. She had a heart condition. Yep. She couldn't travel. So I said to the FBI and the prosecutor in the United States, well, we'll bring a doctor. So we actually took a police doctor from Melbourne okay. on, on the extradition yep. to cater for her. The second thing that's happened was that Bill was, of course, Bill and Anne was in separate in separate part, the separate locations in the prison. Yeah. Murdering Bill's cell. Oh. One of his cellmates was murdered. And Bill said, that's it, I've had enough, I'm getting out of here. So they, in the end, they both agreed to the extradition back to Australia. Right. Uh, and, and so the, that extradition process then commenced. Wow. And look, with because uh, I think in the documentary it said one of the children said that Bill was quite um, well known in his own field or in his own style of work. How did those two meet? Were they youngsters or did he, they meet later in life? Uh, no, uh, Anne was previously married, um, and uh, Bill was married to uh, uh, a woman who somehow ended up in a psychiatric hospital. Um, he was apparently good-looking in his younger days. Yeah, um, he was in uh, from Gippsland and had his own business. And it was pretty well known and well-to-do in that particular area. You got to remember that uh, Anne was um, the daughter of a railway worker, and she was born yeah. in Sale, Victoria. Um, so she met him, and it was obviously that, um, that you know, um, I think that, that he, she probably understood how much better off she would be with him. Yeah. And he was a well-spoken person, well-known. Um, and so uh, married William and, and Burns' wife, first wife, um, uh, my understanding, is ended up in a hospital. Yeah, because also um, Anne's uh, upbringing, as you say, they were poor, but her mum also was in and out of psych hospitals, wasn't she? Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. When, she, when she was younger. So, so you know, um, whatever the treatment was in those days. But that makes no excuse. Oh, no, definitely no not. For a, I mean, you know, I've said to people when, at the time of Anne's death a couple of years ago, you know, they, I was asked by the press, you know, how I felt. And I said it was the most happiest day of my life. Yeah. You know, that the witch was dead. You know, I used, I used the B word instead of the W word. Yeah. But, you know, I was quite I was quite upfront about it. You know, it was one of the most happiest days of my life because, you know, um, she was the most evil person that I ever came across in my 18 years of policing. What she did to children, what she did to cult members, oh. you know. And, and um, you know, sadly, she lived in, right into her 90s. She died uh, with the Alzheimer's. Yeah. And the sick part about it, the sick part about it was, you know, she would cradle this, one of those baby dolls in the hospital. Yeah, it's just, a, just an incredible story, the amount of lives that she destroyed. 
uh, and the amount of people that she affected. Really, we haven't spoken much about the children and, you know, it's it's <laughs> what she did uh, with those aunties and you, you have to wonder why the aunties just went along with everything she said, but the, the children were actually beaten for just wetting the bed or uh, taking a bit of extra food and, and things like that. They were m- menial things, weren't they? Yeah, they were. No, they, had, they received dunkings and buckets of water until I could not nearly breathe and so forth. But you have to understand, Daniel, that many of the sect followers, uh, and I don't excuse the two aunties, the two main aunties, for what they didn't. One of them I actually spoke to at length with a female detective in the United Kingdom yeah. who actually gave us a lot of evidence. I don't excuse what they did, but they too, in a way, uh, were also victims of, of Anne. Yeah. Uh, but they were adults and they must be always held accountable for their Definitely, actions. Yeah. But, but they believed that Anne was Jesus Christ. Yeah. Reincarnated in the female form. And if you're told to do something by Jesus Christ and you're a believer in that cult, you would do it. You're going to do it, yeah. Now, for you and I, who I hope we're both rational people, we would say, how bloody bizarre is that? But to them, it's not bizarre. Many people look at what happened in, you know, in World War II in Hitler's Germany. Now, how could people, normal, sensible people, have done that? Yeah, uh, that some of those horrific crimes, no different. You yeah. know, their minds are manipulated. Yeah, you know, through propaganda, through a whole range of things that they had a belief in the one person. Yeah, even in today's world, you know, there are societies like that. So, with her having the houses all around the world, they were saying in the documentary that well, one of the girls said that she was taken over to the UK and spent about a month on LSD. Um, yeah. And, I mean, I was going to say, well, how do they get them through the country? But as you said, they had all these people that were signing paperwork, so passports and all those sort of things probably wouldn't have been an issue for them to get through. The child that you're, or the girl that you're talking with sadly passed away, uh, who, who, and I equate that, in, in, a lot of it, to, to the cult, and she was a terrific person. Um, you know, I was, I was honoured to have been asked to give a eulogy at her, at her funeral. Wow. Uh, but, you know, she was taken at the age of 14 to Broome Farm in Kent and she went through what they called a clearing. The clearing was the administering of LSD to the children. One of my biggest regrets is, you know, and people have said, all you chose, Anne and William, was with perjury on a document. Well, sadly, sadly, that's, that's right. And, and sadly, that was the only charge that we, at the end of the day that um, they couldn't, they, they could not beat because... They forged a document. Documents don't lie. People lie on documents. Yeah. But, you know, to, to charge them with the administering of drugs to children and others, you actually need the drug. And obviously we don't have the drug. We never yeah. had the drug. But yeah. there is no doubt 1,000% that, that, you know, uh, through two eminent psychiatrists at the time uh, that were cult members, uh, people, including children, were administered LSD. Uh, and um, yeah, at Anne's instruction. Yeah. And, and did those psychiatrists who were in the cult who were working with her for her, did they get struck off afterwards or was there not enough evidence to no, remove them? One, of them? one of them left the cult all of a sudden and then went and worked in charge of a psychiatric hospital up in, Mel- in Victoria's northeast. 
Um, and um, uh, he was, uh, he knew what he'd done wrong, and, you know, and his wife was also a cult member. Yeah. You know, and she ended up marrying another cult member um, whose wife married another cult member, and, and that woman was one of the aunties who was the one I spoke to in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, um, and then the other psychiatrist ended up just practising general, general medicine, which he did up until his retirement in most recent years, I'm told, but he was still a GP in Fentrigoli. Well, look, I mean, it took you four and a half years to get through all this, and it's no wonder because it was such a tangled web that you had to try and work out what was going on. We, we, we were fortunate that when, when the task force was established in December 89, um, I, had a, a, I had a great senior sergeant, detective senior sergeant, Peter Spence, who was very smart, and we searched a lot of documents, and we found on one of the documents... Uh, Peter actually found this signature from the lawyer and we'd found out that this lawyer was Anne's lawyer. Right. And he left the cult months earlier yep. out of uh, out of a big blue with Anne. Yeah. So we uh, issued a, uh, an arrest warrant for perjury on this particular document by the solicitor. Yeah. So one Monday morning we fronted up, Peter and I fronted up at Camperdown in, in, uh, to the west of Melbourne, about three, four hours to the west of Melbourne, small, sizable community in Melbourne, in Victoria's southwestern. We marched in at nine o'clock into the solicitor's office, passed the receptionist, introduced ourselves, arrested Peter, uh, walked him up the street, across, across one part of the street, down the other side of the street, into the police station, of course, in a small town. Yeah. People, what's going on? And we charged him and we said to him, uh, Peter, think about it. Uh, and he was angry at her, angry. Said, if you're prepared to assist us, uh, you know, um, these charges on you will proceed to court. Yep. I'll consider uh, giving character evidence for you and how you cooperated with the police. So about a week later, Peter rang and said, I'd like to see you. So we went and saw Peter at his home with his wife, who was also a cult member. Um, who who had been introduced? Those they had been introduced by Anne. Yep. And Peter said, "I'm prepared to tell you everything." So for about the next three months, I would pick him up from home in Alinda, which is about an hour east of Melbourne, drive him into the detective's office in St Kilda Road uh, near Central Melbourne, and uh, take a handwritten statement. Try to take him home and and repeat that day after day for about three months. Wow. And we went through document after document that he'd forged on behalf of Anne and got the story behind the births and the properties and so forth. So at the end of the day, it was 365 pages, handwritten pages of evidence. Wow. And it was through Peter towards the end that uh, he was being in, he was in contact with one of the aunties in the, who had moved to the United Kingdom uh, that had been up at Ilden. And I spoke with her on the phone we needed to go and talk to her in London. Yeah. And that was in those days in the early 90s to try and get a detective to go to London from Victoria Police. Where, you know, it was a whole bureaucracy that had to yeah. happen to go through the department, the minister and so forth. And I remember, you know, I had spoke to her on the phone this day with Peter in the room, getting excited. Yes, she's, she's prepared to turn Queen's evidence and tell us everything. I had to go to the toilet. So I said to Peter, excuse me, and I left the room and I went to the toilet. Now, 
you might laugh at this. So I'm standing at the urinal, minding my own business, of course, and standing next to me came the assistant commissioner in charge of crime. Okay. He said to me, uh, so Alex, how's, how's it going? I said, boss, uh, you know, sir, uh, this is what's just happened. And so, you know, she's prepared to speak to us. This was just before Christmas of Christmas of 1990. Yeah, she prepared to speak to us, but I so I'm going to sit back do the paperwork, see how so I'll probably end up on your desk and you know, but you know she could blow the whole case up and she said, go and book yourself a ticket now, go. Um, oh, right, go. <laughs> the paperwork basically uh, there and then signed yep. off there and then, and about a week later, myself and a female detective were on the plane to London where we spent three months. Wow. Uh, her, but whilst uh, the female detective interviewed um, the cult member, the former cult member who was a nurse, one of the aunties, I did inquiries in uh, London and located actually one of the triplets that had been registered in New Zealand. Right. And then took a statement from him, located him, spoke to him and his then wife in a hotel room for about three or four weeks. So, so you know, it was all part of the investigation to to get sufficient evidence and to see what was happening. And then, as I said at the start, the last 12 months I was put in charge. The senior sergeant had had left the task force by then. I was put in charge and, um, yeah, 12, we had 12 months to clean it up and resulted in Anne and William being extradited back to Australia. And one of the things that back in December 1989, a reporter said to us, if you find her, you'll never charge her. If you charge her, You'll never get it back to this country. If you get it back to this country, you'll never get it before a court. If you get it before your court, you'll never get a conviction. That's a fair mighty challenge from the media. Yeah. You know? So we found her, we charged her, we brought her back, and it was Anne and Bill who said the words guilty yeah. to the charge of perjury. And, you know, I was, I was delighted, but I was really angry at the end of the day with the $5,000 penalty that they got for the perjury on the documents after the years and years and years of hard work, but yeah. more so the years and years of trauma that, that they had caused on children, the lives that they told on children, drugs, the deception on mothers and fathers, what they'd done, what she had done to cult members. But sadly, that was the only thing we could get. But I suppose at the end of the day, I just, I, we, the task force, dispelled the myth of Anne being Jesus Christ reincarnated in the female form. I worked some, with you know every member of the task force, all 13, were tremendous people and devoted to it when they were on the task force. And when I look back, could we have done more? Possibly. But in those days, of course, we didn't have the technology we have today. But, you know, I, I remember saying to the press, after when, when I got asked about her death, I said, well, I suppose in three days' time I'll find out if she is Jesus Christ. Well, she never came back, did she? <laughs> so uh, I said that it's a bit of a, you know, a bit of a slice, smart aleck type comment. Yeah, and I still keep in contact with a small number of the, the children who are now adults. who are yeah. great people, beautiful yeah. people. You know, that you, you just have to take your hats off to all of them and, and, and as you'll gather, I won't use their names. I won't disclose no, no, who no. they are. I won't disclose where they live. Yeah. That's their life. Yeah. Um, and, and my sole journey about relaying this story and talking about this story is to keep people's awareness that these things 
whilst they might not be able to happen in our society any longer because of checks and balances, that means they couldn't happen. Yeah. So, you know. Um, and um, look, I think your awareness, you know, like you say that, you know, would it have been better to get a better conviction? You got her, as you said, to admit her guilt and you got uh, awareness to what had happened where other police might not have got the awareness out there of what had happened to these kids and what happened to, you know, the, the people involved. It, it's it's brought a big awareness out there and those kids, I mean, they'd be forever grateful for you for helping them to unearth this. Yeah, although, you know, I started, I got the report up and running and so forth, um, you know, and I'm friends with quite a number of the kids, now adults, you know, um, it was a huge team effort by the by the team and, and I would have hoped that anyone uh, with a badge that was in my position that went to that school fire would have done exactly the same thing as I did. But because when you, when you understand that the treatment these children's these children came under, and the resistance to do anything about it in those days, to me there were a couple of career defining moments on the task force, and I say that by uh, challenging the department or those higher ranks and. Could have gone either way, but I was fortunate that I had uh, good, good people, good officers that that listened, that yep. that heard what I had to say, and had a belief that what I was saying was right, and therefore said, "No, we had to do something." And 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 you know, and as I said, I can't take anything away from the magnificent team members that we had uh, on the task force that that really did a lot of the grunt work with the kids, doing the interviews with the kids. And, uh, you know, although Anne and Bill were only gu- found guilty or pleaded guilty to the, the perjury charge, it was about demystifying the myth. Yeah, and yeah. sadly, you know, even after that, people still believed in right up until her death, and there are still people today, yeah. small, number, small yeah. number, who are still alive that believe that she is Jesus Christ reincarnated in the female form, still have that underlying, only a very, very, very handful, I'm told. Uh, but um, you know, be, the, be, the, be that on their head. And, look, I think it's also important to uh, just go over that. Uh, I think it was seven or eight of the members of the sect actually were brought to trial as well, weren't they, for various things? During our task force and also through the inquiry through the Blackburn Community Policing Squad and Federal Police, there were a number of uh, aunties and older cult members that were brought before the Ringwood Magistrates Court on fraud charges yeah. against the Commonwealth uh, through uh, the um, Health Services Community Services, yeah. uh, you know, falsification of claims and so forth. And a number of them were also, I think it was one doctor and there were a number of nurses and so forth. So, you know, they, they were treated, uh, you know, they were dealt with, which was yeah. good as well. But sadly, not all of them were dealt with and, and sadly, not, sadly, a number of them retired from their profession with an unblemished record when in actual fact they should have had a bloody blemished record. Oh, but definitely. nothing could happen with them. No, no, no. Um, look, is there anything else that you think we need to talk about? I mean, I think we've covered quite a bit here, Lex. Uh, I did want to just add that when I was speaking to my mum on the weekend, she said, oh, I remember the family because my mum and my sister worked for CSV, which was Community Services Victoria at the time. Uh, they both worked in separate houses looking after uh, vulnerable children. Yeah. And they said that she said that they'd got the call either the early hours of the morning to go and meet somewhere to take it on these kids. Um yeah. 
and she was only there for about half a day and then they worked out what staff they were going to have that was working. Yeah, and that would have been on the 14th of August 1987. Wow. I can tell you the date. Yeah. That's when that would have happened, the morning of, because that's when the raids happened. You know, um, I, I take my hat off to, to the survivors, as I yeah. call them, the children, the now adults, but the survivors. They, you know, they have they've done a powerful a powerful job in in normalising their lives in many, many ways and become great parents themselves. Yeah. Of some, some beaut kids. There is still some some sadness about a number of the cult followers, some who are still alive, some of the children and so forth. But I pay, te- you know, I, 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 my hat's off to those survivors very much so because uh, you imagine all of a sudden your whole world has turned upside down and who you thought were your mother and father and not your mother and father when you learn the truth about who your natural parents are. Yeah. I feel for the natural parents who, who gave up their children in a deceptful manner that they were deceived by Anne, you know, those that, those that went through, through that horror. Uh, and years later, having police knock on their door, you know, and I also honour and testament to the police members uh, that were on the task force under Peter Spencer's initial steward- stewardship. Uh, I can't thank Peter enough for what he did and taught me. And really, I was allowed for four and a half years through some great senior officers of Victoria Police to bring this whole thing to an end because it, it had to be resolved at the end. Yeah, and I, I think. Some of the lessons out of Operation Forest, as it was called, you know, we saw the number of private adoption agencies reduced from, I think it was 27 to about three or five now. Wow. Today. Yeah. You know, uh, processes in, in birth, deaths and marriages were tightened up significantly here. Yeah. Uh, I think in other jurisdictions. And, you know, there are some great people who actually took care of the the children, you know, the survivors and 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 a number who still today still are great friends with those adults yeah. who are now the survivors, you know, survivors who are now adults. So there's a whole raft of people. But it's interesting, you, 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 your page goes off in the middle of the night, you ring D24, which is the police headquarters for emergency right. call, and you get directed to this school fire, and you think you're just going out to a normal school fire, and lo and behold, you know, that, that, that takes you down a, a journey of four and a half years. And I never forget the police doctor who I mentioned at the start, who I thought was crazy when he first told me about Anne. Yeah. He said to me, don't get involved, Lex, because if you get involved, it will be with you for life. And I thought to myself, that's a bizarre comment. Well, I'm still with it insofar as, you know, keeping in, in some contact with some of the kids. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm talking about it again yeah. as education for the for, for the for the community. And those of us who are in positions, or those people in positions of authority, in in, uh, in state government and federal government, and also the senior bureaucracies, must always be on their guard because there is evil people out there yeah. prepared to manipulate children and others for their own aim. Yeah. And can I, sorry, I did want to ask you, how how do you think your mental health went through the whole thing? Because you would have had ups and downs and then at the end of it, I, I can just imagine an outpouring. Yeah, it was, um, there were a number of my close friends worried about me during the time I didn't realise that. But I remember one episode when we got the phone call from the FBI yeah. at midnight, they'd arrested Anne and Bill. Yeah. 
you know, you've got to realise that at that stage, two members of the task force at that stage had, had their own mental health issues caused by the inquiry. Yep. There'd been a lot of issues, yep. you know, hearing the stories of the kids. I remember going on, I think I was on the 10th floor of the 412 St Kilda Road, and I had one of the one of the survivors, one of the kids there who was helping us with um, with because Anne had contacted her, and that's how we got found out she was in the states. And the police doctor was there, and members of the team. I walked out of the office. I walked down the corridor to the mess room, and I just destroyed the mess room. I threw chairs and tables over. I broke down. I yeah. cried my eyes out, whatever. And I didn't realise that I was suffering from any form of stress. Um, and so forth, but it was all that pent up of that four years, yeah, yeah, yeah. work and anger that all of a sudden came out. So that was my release valve, and now I, through my other experiences in CFA, but also in policing, you know, I, I talk quite openly about the need to, uh, to take care of yourself and to recognise when you do need to chat, you need, you do need counselling, you do need to seek out assistance and help. Yeah, and I'm more than happy to put my hand up anytime and say, as a leader of the task force, but as a leader of, of um, my region during the devastating fires of Black Saturday or the loss of five firefighters in 1998 at Linton, you know, um, just because you're the leader doesn't mean you don't get affected, and you've yeah. got to give license to everybody else to talk about mental health. Yeah. And the best way you can do that is by saying to people, "I'm seeking help." Yeah. So definitely. I'm seeking help. Yeah, boy, that means you're more than welcome to seek help because it affects us. PTSD affects us all in a different way. Yeah, but it does affect us. Yeah, and, you know that macho stuff. I oh, should be right. Get on with it. Yeah, you know those days are gone. Those days are gone. You know, um, I've been involved in you know, a police shooting, and and you know, expected to be back on the divisional van six hours after I put a black in hospital with a with a firearm. That would not happen today. It doesn't happen today, and that's good that it doesn't happen today. Yeah. But leaders need to talk about it. Oh, definitely. And yeah. own it and, and give licence to others to seek assistance. Because when they see someone like you that says, yes, look, I broke down, I needed to get some uh, counselling, I needed to chat to people, then they understand it's okay for them. Correct. Yeah. And, and I just wanted to uh, go back over as well because, you know, you said with the frustration you threw chairs away uh, around and uh, sort of messed up the mess room. And the reason was as well is because with Anne having all these properties all over the world, you were trying to track her all the time, weren't you? And she was moving everywhere. So it wasn't like you just yeah, went, oh, exactly. she's there and we can go and get her. She was flighty. It took us quite a while to track her down. And she made a, you know, we're looking at the United Kingdom, we're looking at the United States. We had no idea where she was, you know, and um, Chris, you got to remember the IT systems were a bit slow in yeah, those yeah. days, or non-existent. And it was one Sunday night she made a fatal error and rang one of the children, and who rang me and said, "I think she's in the United States." So the very next morning, I picked up the phone. And I asked the international operator, "Did you do in those days?" To hook me yeah. up to the FBI office in New York City. So we hooked up to the phone in New York City and a woman by the name of Hilda Kogut, who was a special agent with the FBI, who I came to know very well, picked up the phone and my first words were, uh, said to her, were, uh, now, uh, don't hang up. I'm not a nut. I want to tell you a story. I'm a copper and I need your help. Yep. And fortunately, we got the right agent. 
and then the rest is history. Brilliant, Lex. Brilliant. Look, it's it's been so good talking to you, and uh, I like how you ended it up, and you know, spoke about uh, it's acceptable for men to uh, yep. go and get mental health because that's great for men to hear. No worries. All right. Well, I'm I'm I'm, I'm glad I um, I'm glad I could help, Daniel. No worries. It's been fantastic. Thank you so much, Lex. Thanks, Daniel. All right. Bye bye. Well, that was another episode of Life Changes You. If you want to contact us, we're available on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And we also have a website, lifechangesyou.com.au. So until next time, take care of each other and thanks for listening.